Bagnon, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. I learned a little bit at the time about the new jewel movement and Maurice Bishop. And I remember writing a longish piece for the school newspaper on the U.S. intervention into Grenada, trying to attach it in my own juvenile way to other U.S. interventions of that kind, including and most spectacularly the U.S. armed entry into the Dominican Republic in 1965. In this article, I compared the intervention into the Dominican Republic with Grenada and it impacted me a lot because I felt, why do poor people have to tolerate this over and over again? That's Vijay Prashad. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Vijay Prashad on History Lessons, part one of a special two-part program. Is history just a bunch of innocuous cold facts and dates, or is it something more? What can we learn from the past? History is not neutral. It's an ideological battleground. Witness the vitriolic attacks by establishment figures on those who want a reckoning of the enslavement of African Americans. They want to obfuscate that sordid history. Or take the U.S. invasion of Grenada in 1983. What was that about? Or the CIA coup in Chile? Never read about that in school. Elites can lie outright about history or they can omit facts that might lead to inconvenient conclusions. The rulers want to keep to their sanitized version of the past and maintain myths about enlightened leaders. Sure, here and there a few bad apples made mistakes, but they were the exception, not the rule. Were they? Our guest today is Vijay Prashad, He's an internationally renowned historian and journalist. He's the director of Tricontinental and chief correspondent for Globetrotter. He's the author of many books, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations. I talked with him in early November. Welcome to the program. It's an honor to be with you, David. Thank you. Howard Zinn, whose centenary we are marking this year, wrote in the preface to your book, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. Zinn wrote, Turning history on its head opens up whole new worlds of possibility. Once historians looked only at society's upper crust, the leaders and others who made the headlines and whose words and deeds survived as historical truth. In our lifetimes, Zinn continues, this has begun to change, shifting history's lens from the upper rungs to the lower. We're learning more than ever about the masses of people who did the work that made society tick. Now, you are a historian in the Zinn tradition of turning history on its head, along with Eduardo Galliano, C.L.R. James, uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and others. 
Talk about that. Talk about uh, peeling away the layers of subterfuge and propaganda and challenging the lies and fantasies of imperialism. Well, you know, David, it's a funny business because the question always is what is available when you go back to look at the past? The old adage, however cliched, is correct that who wins writes the history. That's a correct statement because it's not the writing of the history alone, but it's the creation of documentation, which then subsequent historians must read. And also it's the attitude of the historian, you know, when you read those documents. When I went to graduate school in the 1980s, there was a great sense of perhaps, you know, let's call it what it was, a great sense of despair at the world even then. The United States began a very aggressive series of military campaigns after the dirty wars in Central America um, against Panama in 1989 and then Iraq in 1990-1991. A new epoch was opening up and historians seemed uh, gloomy about both the past and the future. You know, you only write about the past in a sense um, how you experience the present. It, It really impacts people. If you're in the middle of a major social movement, you might have more faith in looking for uh, people in social movements of one kind or the other in the past. Well, in that period, we were taught to read the documents against their grain. It was now becoming de rigueur to do that. You know, there was subaltern studies, there was history from below and so on. Um, But what I found was it was not so much the techniques of reading history against the grain as the attitude that a historian must bring to their work. Are you genuinely interested in the masses of people? Do you really believe that they can make history? Uh, Are you taking that stance as it were because you are being told to or do you really believe they can change things? You know, um, futility is a poor way to look back at people's struggles just because somebody lost a struggle doesn't mean that they were not right to conduct it, or it doesn't mean that had they prevailed, they wouldn't have made a better world. You know, that stance, that attitude, to my opinion, in my opinion, is very important. So when I read people like Howard Zinn, Eduardo Galliano, Walter Rodney, and so on, it's very clear that they have faith that had the people won in this or that event in the past, Um, the people would have created a better world than the minorities that eventually won through force, were able to monopolize power, and then created a world where they benefit and everybody else seems to have to work for them. So I, I very much believe that it's the attitude of the historian toward the past that counts, you know, um, not merely techniques of how to read history uh, documents against the grain and so forth. You've got to have that attitude. Howard Zinn was uh, very fond of uh, Orwell's those who control the present control the past and those who control the past control the future. That's precisely correct. I mean, you know, how can you disagree with that? On the other hand, those, you know, in that statement, those who control the past and those who are able to determine the future those are a minority. And in fact, frankly speaking, increasingly, those have become extraordinarily mediocre people. 
And it's astounding that those are able to control the past. You know, at some point, money power is insufficient. You've got to have a vision. You've got to have an ability to articulate what the past looks like and what the future must look like. Look at today's leaders, whether it's Joe Biden or Emmanuel Macron or Olaf Schultz, and these are the ones in the West, Kishida in Japan. I mean, these are, if you don't mind my saying so, pretty mediocre figures um, who don't inspire the kind of confidence. I don't share any opinion with somebody like Churchill, for instance, as an example of the past. But Churchill was a considerable uh, character. You know, he understood what he was doing. He was brutal in the way he de- defined the past and how he wanted to anticipate the future and so on. The caliber of those, you know, those who control the past and so on, the caliber of them has really deteriorated. And despite the fact that they control money and that they control the warships and so on, they're going to have a harder and harder time controlling our imagination because they're simply not able to provide a narrative that's compelling for millions and billions of people. Today's leaders don't even have the capacity, it seems to me, to put together a theory of the world. The United States is a fragile power. It wants to contest China rather than actually come up with its own vision for what the world should look like. United States is now descended into fear-mongering about China, fear-mongering about Xi Jinping, fear-mongering about what the Chinese will do to the world and so on. Get us with a compelling narrative of what the United States proposes to do rather than merely introduce fear and hatred into public discussion. Public discussion is already deteriorated considerably. To increase that, to add fuel to the fire by, you know, fear-mongering about China is not adequate. I'd like to see people like even Macron, who's perhaps the most intelligent of the lot, articulate a vision for a renewed West. I just haven't seen it. You know, here in the United States, there's, uh, you know, talking about the past and history is a deification of what I call the founding fathers, infallible men who did great things and created the United States of, of America. This is across the board among political elites. No one challenges that narrative. Well, it's not just the founding fathers. I read the other day almost accidentally, I wasn't looking to find it, that something like the first dozen U.S. presidents owned human beings. They owned slaves, Um, maybe more than the first dozen, but certainly the first dozen. It tells you something about these founding fathers. If we just stick with the originators, the people who wrote the Constitution and so on. Look, you know, they did something quite incredible. They did, um, on behalf of their class, fight off the British Empire, they did write a constitution that in many respects was ahead of its time. It's a pretty good constitution. At the same time, these same gentlemen uh, froze into amber social relations such as enslavement of human beings. Um, They actually uh, fought against King George III so that they could go beyond the original colonies and conquer the lands of the Amerindian peoples and so on. I mean, you know, a country must build its own narrative based on the facts, not on a myth. Um, I think it's healthier for a country to acknowledge the facts of, of its construction, the facts of 
um, its origin, you know, because then you know where you come from and where you must go. Uh, not freeze time at the originary point. You know, there is this attitude in the United States, which is, I suppose, um, really quite uh, developed in the Supreme Court now, where this idea of originary thinking, you know, origination, what did the actual founding fathers mean when they wrote that sentence? I mean, they have made the U.S. Constitution into a religious text. And if you make a constitution into a religious text, then, as in most religious traditions, the writing of the constitution is mythical. It's not factual. You don't want the actual facts. You don't want to know actually what these men were like because you have raised them to the standard of, you know, the titans of the early Americas, the gods and so on. God forbid they had failures. If they had failures and failings and limitations, then you would have to say, look, here's a constitution written by people of their time who also had limitations. So we should be able to interpret the constitution, perhaps rewrite bits of it and so on. But my goodness, the American right, but also sections of the liberal element, it's not only the myth of the founding fathers as a way to look at history that detains them. It's also what this means for the politics today. Because then they can make the argument that, well, you know, the founding fathers said the following, David, in the Second Amendment, which is to say regarding guns. And if they said it there, despite the fact that reality shows that having guns saturate a society is very unhealthy, it's bad for the public health, children are being killed and so on. Let's consider getting rid of the Second Amendment. You can't because, my goodness. The founding fathers put it in there. And if the founding fathers, these great mythical figures who can do no wrong, put it in there, well, you can't revise it. It's extraordinary to have such a religious attitude, you know, towards a text that, in fact, when it was written, acknowledged for itself that it was not to be a religious text. These men themselves, founding fathers as they are seen to be, they were not canonical religious people. You know, many of them were deists. They had all kinds of interesting ideas about their place in the world. But the people who are interpreting the text don't, don't see their deism. You know, They don't see the interesting 18th century ideas with which they uh, played. I remember as a child visiting a, a cemetery in Calcutta where I grew up. And in this cemetery is the grave of Sir William Jones, you know, one of the great Indologists. Well, Sir William Jones was a was a deist. And I quite remember my uncle explaining to me why there was a giant eye in a pyramid um, on the grave of, of Sir William uh, Jones. And when you look at the US dollar bill, you see a similar kind of deist symbolic, you know, symbolism, the, the pyramid with the eye in it. There's nothing mysterious about it. These were deists. They were fascinated by Egyptology, by the discoveries in Egypt. They were fascinated by the idea of one God that was not, you know, Christian or Jewish or Islamic, but one sort of God itself. But yet the people who interpret their texts don't see them as people. They see them quite right, as you said so, as sort of mythical figures cannot do no wrong. Therefore, they cannot be challenged or not only challenged, but revised. They cannot be revised. Talk about the intersection of imperialism and propaganda. In the book, Culture and Resistance, Edward Said said, and I'm quoting, 
every empire does two things. It begins by saying it's not like any of the empires of the past. And second, it always talks not in terms of destruction, but in fact of the opposite, that it's bringing enlightenment and civilization, peace and progress to the other people. It was true in Conrad's day 100 years ago, and it's true today. A great, great thinker and wonderful person, Edward Said. He's, of course, correct because it is true that empires don't like to imagine that they are simply repetitions of earlier empires. Although I must say that, again, if you came back to me for a walk in Calcutta, then we went into the Victoria Memorial, um, you'd find marble statues of British officials dressed in togas. So the British did sort of fantasize that they were, you know, Pax Britannica was, in a sense, the updated version of Pax Romana. There is an element uh, among empires of saying we have a relation with the past, but of course we are better than them. More than anything else, the key thing about an empire, about any kind of human domination, is human beings very rarely uh, believe that they do bad things for bad ends. Yes, they acknowledge we're doing some bad things, but we're doing it for a good reason. Yes, yes, we're killing off people, but for a good reason. Yes, we're putting people in their place. We're teaching them a more civilized way of living and so on. Um, that's the reason why we had to kill two, three hundred odd people in Jallianwala Bagh in 1919 in Punjab, India. And then they said it's for your own good. It's for civilization. Well, I mean... For God's sake, the Indians certainly didn't need civilizational advice from the British. And after all those years of colonialism, the remarkably long period, centuries of colonialism, when the British were finally ejected from India, the literacy rate was 13%. There was a steep decline in people's ability to read and write because they basically closed down all the Indian schools. Uh, people now had to study the British way. That was not working. And also, very few people were actually able to go to formal schools. And, you know, what civilization? Where? Conrad nailed it in Heart of Darkness. He wrote, the conquest of the earth, which mostly means the taking it away from those who have a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves, is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. What redeems it is the idea only. I keep returning to India, David, because that formed me in so many ways. I grew up and, and studied about India for years and have lived there off and on for years and so on. So I keep returning to it. Early in my life, I used to love going on the Indian trains, riding the train sometimes to the coastline of Odisha or riding the train to Delhi, riding the train to Hyderabad and so on. I love the overnight train rides in India. Once my father told me, you know, son, look down at the track as we go by. You'll see the two metal rails and then the pieces of the slats of wood, which hold the rails together. And I used to say, you know, that was lovely to look at. When you're riding in the train, you look at the track next to you. The wood seems to disappear. You know, it's a kind of the illusion of speed. Um, but he then told me a story of how when the British came into the area that's now Bihar and Jharkhand, um, they discovered forests of mahogany trees. Now, mahogany is an incredible tree. It takes a very long time to grow. 
but the wood is superb and it, it provides beautiful shade. Well, the British cut, he said, entire forest of mahogany in order to make the slats for the rail lines. It was a brutal uh, use of an old part of nature, you know, brutal use. And in the place where the mahogany used to grow in those forests, they began to grow opium and indigo. Opium to force the Chinese to become uh, addicted to the drug uh, and indigo, of course, for the international market to dye clothes. Uh, they grew plantations on that old mahogany forest to grow in opium and indigo and hence depleted the soil because in the indigo plantations, they never really gave the soil time to rest. So not only did they take from the soil our trees, they also took the soil itself and then took, of course, the lives of generations of Chinese who didn't want to, um, you know, take the opium, but the British fought wars from 1849 to 1860 to force the Chinese um, into opium consumption. By the way, many of the great names of the Asian trade, um, Jardine Matheson, for instance, Barclays Bank, the American listeners will be familiar with Forbes, the Forbes family, with Astor family, the famous Astor place in New York. These were all drug dealers. You know, they made their money selling opium to the Chinese, forcing the Chinese to ingest opium. I mean, it's incredible when you think of Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank and its history in this. You know, we never get an accounting, a reckoning. The Astors have never had to pay the price for being drug dealers. The Forbes have never paid the price for being drug dealers. They got away scot-free uh, for that. But the soil was depleted in the part of the world where I lived in, was destroyed. And as a consequence, we have open deserts now in sections of Jharkhand, areas where there used to be thick forest are now basically savanna. The lungs of that part of the world were destroyed. Well, that was not done by reckless Indian policy, although the Indian government is pretty reckless with nature. That was an inheritance of those who came to civilize us. Perhaps Conrad is right. To civilize us meant to take away the things that gave us joy in our landscape. For instance, our forests. People might be familiar with the film by Francis Ford Coppola, Apocalypse Now, which took its inspiration from uh, Heart of Darkness, which is, you know, it's a very slim volume. It's really a novella, but he captures the essence of uh, imperialism, and he has the character Kurtz, who's played by Marlon Brando in, in the film, say, exterminate the brutes. That's a great line. And, you know, that's the name of a book uh, written, of course, by Sven, Sven Lindquist about the horrendous genocidal behavior of the Belgian monarch King Leopold II in, um, in the Congo. Uh, Conrad's book is set in something that's like the Congo. Um, it's kind of a, not clear the geography, but it's it's something like the Congo. I must say that I want people, if they haven't seen Coppola's film, uh, Apocalypse Now, to see it, because it is an extraordinary film about the arrogance of empire and also um, the really sad situation for young people uh, who are sent to do empire's work. After all, many of the characters the U.S. characters in that film who go in the U.S. military uh, to fight in Vietnam, where the film is set, they are not exactly brutal people. You know, these are people with sensitivity and they don't know what they're doing there. 
the encounter with that great captain, who I'm not sure what his rank is, played by Robert Duval, you know, who says at that famous scene when the helicopters are coming in, he says, I like the smell of napalm in the morning. And right below them, as they are strafing the Vietnamese countryside, uh, his one of his favorite people, I guess from San Diego, is surfing as they go into advance. The surrealism of that is extraordinary. But Coppola, I think, is making an important point there, which is that, you know, that's a surfer kid. He doesn't want to be there. He wants to be surfing off the coastline of California, you know. What is he doing in the backwaters of Vietnam, fighting against a people who have a legitimate right to determine their own destiny? It's a really powerful film, I feel. I don't know how much it gets watched any longer. It's so long. I don't know if people have the appetite for such a long movie, but it is a profound critique of uh, of the war against the Vietnamese. Well, you also have, thanks to WikiLeaks, the video of U.S. helicopter pilots in Baghdad mowing down unarmed Iraqi civilians. When I first saw that video, I was really quite shocked by um, a couple of things. Firstly, we knew about that massacre beforehand. Um, In fact, a reporter from the United States had written a book about that company called The Good Soldiers in which he indicated that such a video had um, existed, you know, that there was a helicopter video. Um, He, of course, in his book, uh, justified the killing by the helicopter pilots, hence the title, The Good Soldiers. But there was this hint in his book that there was a video and that he had seen it. U.S. military refused and said there is no such thing, refused to reveal this video. Um, The killing had happened. It was very clear that two... Uh, Reuters employees had been killed, one of them a camera person, one of them a driver, um, that other civilians had been killed. There's a scene where they are lying uh, essentially for death on the roadside. And one of the people, um, I think it might be Saeed, or one of them is reaching out for his, he's moving and his camera is in front of him with a very large telephoto lens. And the helicopter pilot says, Uh, I have permission to engage, you know, and then they, he he said, reach for that gun, reach for that gun, which is actually a camera. When he does, he fires again. And then this car comes a very, um, you know, a man, you know, humanitarian arrives with his, his car. um, And he parks there trying to put the wounded into his car so he can take them to hospital the helicopters fired a missile into the car. Now, in the car were his two children, this man's two children. Both were grievously injured. The man was killed. One of the children was blinded and so on. U.S. troops eventually come there and they find these two children uh, who survived that attack miraculously. The, The soldiers were deeply moved. Years later, I went and visited that place, David. It's a very small square in New Baghdad City, which is one of the suburbs to Baghdad. Um, it's a horrendous uh, feeling to be there on the ground walking around. Here's the thing, is that the soldier who went and first picked out the children felt enormously guilty and later made a number of public statements, tried to help these children and so on in some small way. You know, this is the soldier who doesn't want to be there, you know, who's, who's sent there to do empire's bidding. But I must say that video when released by WikiLeaks, thanks to Chelsea Manning, finally put on the record the fact that the U.S. government had done this. And of course, there's 
no investigation further. You know, th- there's no international criminal court. There's no nothing. The sheer attitude of the pilots, you know, saying, oh, yes, we got them, you know, this, that, as if they're playing a video game. It's extraordinary, the ethical collapse um, of those pilots. But, you know, the very fact that a civilian comes and tries to save people or that a soldier is heartsick by what he sees suggests to me that humanity continues to exist. The wife of the um, of the man who was killed, who came to rescue people, and you know her and the mother of the two children continues to speak out against war in Iraq and so on. One of the things I discovered in Iraq, which I often talk about, David, is that every house in cities like Baghdad, Fallujah, Ramadi, um, every house, every household has somebody who was either killed or badly injured in that war. The war lasted from 2003, that is to say the second phase of the U.S. war on Iraq. There was an earlier phase from 1991 to 2003, including a terrible sanctions regime. In the second phase from 2003 to roughly 2010, that seven-year period, the U.S. attacks in Iraq were harsh. I mean, really harsh, leveling parts of Fallujah, leveling parts of Ramadi, bombing civilian neighborhoods in Baghdad, bombing rural areas up and down the major rivers. We just, you know, haven't had a proper accounting of the kind of violence. Even the fact that the U.S. government used depleted uranium, you know, as a routine basis hasn't been properly acknowledged. Um, There's no real official history that I've seen uh, of the war, you know, that, that puts all these things together. But I wonder if if there will be a accounting of that war. And finally, if we'd have an accounting of the number of people killed in that war, including, of course, this man who stops his car to rescue civilians, he should have been given an award, not been greeted by a missile from a U.S. Apache helicopter. You're listening to Vijay Prashad on History Lessons, part one of a special two-part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program with Vijay Prashad and his books, Washington Bullets and the Darker Nations, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. And those helicopter pilots were chortling, you may have noticed. They were chuckling as they were lighting lighting them up. And, you know, uh, and of course, that video uh, was leaked by Chelsea Manning, who gave it to WikiLeaks, to Julian Assange, who has been since then persecuted and prosecuted, facing extradition to the United States and uh, criminal charges. I mean, he, he's doing what a journalist should be doing uncovering the truth. You know, I first was in touch with Julian Assange before he created WikiLeaks. And he had said, he had, you know, very sincerely said he was interested in creating some sort of web-based portal that would allow, you know, whistleblowers to put material. And and I, I'm going to say, you know, I, I just thought he was one of these hacker type guys. In fact, the truth is that Julian himself is not a hugely technically adept person. He just had the idea. He's the kind of person who, like you and I, know what to do with a computer, but we're not 
people who are able to hack into computers or anything that's not his skill set he was able to talk to people about his idea and they built a pretty secure website initially they got leaks from various governmental sources you know from around the world initially they were small fry david small little leaks here and there which created a little bit of chaos in this country or that country but nothing major um the first major leak that they got was from chelsea manning and that was extraordinary you know the the bravery of chelsea manning chelsea manning sees this video is horrified downloads it chelsea manning then decides i'm going to download almost everything i can the charge against julian isn't just publishing this material because i published the material at the same time so did the guardian so did the new york times so did la jornada so did you know the hindu newspapers around the world why aren't all the publishers and editors sitting in belmarsh prison with with julian why am i not there i i was one of the first people to write about um the apache helicopter video you know in frontline magazine we saw it in advance why why am i not sitting with julian in belmarsh playing chess with him and so on why are we not there well the accusation against assange is very very uh, dangerous and it's completely wrong firstly they accuse um julian of helping chelsea manning break into the system the state department system this is not true chelsea manning reached out to julian and the authorities know this they are using a false allegation and using that to charge julian assange on the espionage act how can julian assange have conducted espionage julian firstly which is a treason offense he's not a us citizen he's an australian citizen not based in the us he didn't put his finger into the us governmental system chelsea manning did and barack obama pardoned chelsea manning so if you're going to pardon chelsea manning who actually got the material off the website why don't you just let julian assange go in fact the us government has no right to even pardon him because he has done nothing wrong he has merely been the recipient of information that was brought out of a secure server by chelsea manning and then he published it he did the role of a publisher and journalist he doesn't even need to be pardoned because that's ridiculous you you are pardoned for something you do wrong he has to simply be released from belmarsh prison for doing a service to the world i mean imagine how absurd this is the person who actually broke into the system has been pardoned the journalist that published that information is sitting in prison i mean it this is completely commonsensically illogical and yet people say well you know he committed a crime wait a minute the crime was committed by chelsea manning chelsea manning doesn't deny that she broke into the system well she had access to the system but she illegally downloaded the material and handed it outside the secure channel that's a crime she broke the law you know that was a brave act of violating a law but she was pardoned for that that was the crime julian has committed no crime yet he is sitting in belmarsh being tortured and i feel solidarity with a fellow journalist who is being hounded by us authorities uh, he seems to me to exemplify that common adage about the role of a journalist is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable but what we have in this case is the reverse my sympathy is entirely with julian as a publisher and as a journalist I- i'm not going to pass any comment about anything else i mean that's where it begins and ends this is what i i feel is that different parts of the world you know the press is getting attacked 
like in the united states and in the uk it's almost a concerted thing that for people who dissent from the official view now the attack on them you don't need to arrest people they simply say you are purveyors of disinformation you know you are a putinite or you are a agent of the chinese i mean i just spent a morning with noam chomsky in sao paulo we were in brazil together during the election campaign I had a very nice um, coffee with noam and noam was pretty dismayed about the attacks on him uh, for his rather sensible rational position on the situation in ukraine um people calling him you know agent of putin i mean for god's sake noam chomsky in his mid 90s is a man of greater integrity than any troll on social media who decides to disparage somebody like that i mean you got to recall how strange this is in the in the world where dissent gets colored as disinformation and you know we know this is a strategy this is not me just ranting and raving leaked a few months ago was some emails between a british intelligence officer and paul mason the former bbc journalist who's now running for a labor seat in sheffield in the uk well paul mason and this british intelligence person chatting back and forth basically say we need to describe dissenters as purveyors of disinformation that's the kind of phraseology they play with and because they play with that phraseology we know that this is exactly what happens it's much easier to say that i am an agent of china than argue with me on the merits on the evidence and so on and that's a form of disparaging as it were people who are trying to lift up stories that are not being taken seriously you know i am not neither a, a stenographer for the state us state department nor am i a stenographer for the communist party of china i'm just interested in stories and yet if you come out with a story they don't like well they want to either disparage you or at worst uh, do to you what they did to julian assange in your book the withdrawal with noam chomsky he compares the united states to the godfather the mafia boss what was noam getting at there you know i asked noam several times did he mean the actual godfathers in the world the mafia bosses or did he mean marlon brando i mean we seem to be going in circles with francis ford coppola and marlon brando uh, talked already about um, apocalypse now directed by coppola with marlon brando and now we come to the godfather one of my favorite films directed by coppola starring marlon brando well i think that both noam and i have uh, our understanding of the mafia boss shaped from that film and perhaps the sopranos um what is noam getting at it's a basic axiom of the present time that if you don't agree with the united states government then you're wrong uh, then it's okay to whack you even it's perfectly acceptable you'll remember the great liberal president in our time barack obama would sit in his office in the oval office on i believe it was thursday in the morning and go over a list of names of people that the united states was considering assassinating and he would tick off some of the names yes let's kill them including a 16 year old us citizen who was killed in yemen uh, and then us drones would get up into the sky and bomb these people and kill them no trial no evidence no nothing no habeas corpus none of that straightforward assassination campaign based on things like that based on the way in which the us government operates in international negotiations and treaties you know you don't like the iran deal we're just going to walk out of it don't like the 
intermediate nuclear force treaty just going to walk out of it now somebody will say well it was trump that walked out of both of those treaties it's not just trump that walks out of treaties you know we have about 30 treaties which are sitting at the senate floor you know which have not been ratified and the senate has not always been controlled by the trumpists you know the senate is currently in the hands of the democrats why didn't they bring up the uh, international convention on the laws of the sea for instance sitting on the senate floor bring it up for a vote pass it then the us could legitimately and legally conduct freedom of navigation exercises against the chinese right now the united states is conducting those so called freedom of navigation exercises illegally because the us government is not a signatory of the convention on the laws of the sea so this attitude you know we don't like that treaty we're not going to do it we don't like the international criminal court we're not going to ha- get involved in it if you fateh ben souda the lead prosecutor at the international criminal court decide to open a file on us war crimes on afghanistan we're not going to give you a visa to come and testify before the un security council as is your mandate that's the attitude of the godfather that's not the attitude of a of a statesman and so on this attitude that we can kill anybody we want we can use our force to intimidate and and bully you that's not statesmanship that's godfatherism and you know they'd all have that what is it the omerta the kind of rules of the of the game they discuss look can we handle this without starting a gang war well in some cases the us government doesn't even do a sit down let's just do the gang war look how the us government is bullying cuba and venezuela as we speak once again for the 30th time almost in a row the un general assembly has voted to condemn the us blockade of cuba you know the world stands with cuba and yet the united states gangster you know mafia attitude we're going to throttle you we're going to hold you like this for god's sake i mean well let's dial back a little bit uh, in terms of uh, history to 1983 and grenada uh, in your book washington bullets the cia coups and assassinations you write my first indelible memory of political activity comes from the us intervention in grenada in 1983 Talk about that invasion of this small Caribbean island which I dare say most people can't find on the map. So I didn't know where Grenada was. I had no idea who Maurice Bishop was. The only thing I knew about the Caribbean was its other name was the West Indies and it played the best cricket uh, on the planet at that time. That's the only thing I knew about the Caribbean. Uh, I didn't know anything about uh, much about slavery, you know. I mean I hadn't read enough yet at the time I was a young boy but I did read in the newspaper that the United States had sent the marines to this island and had uh, captured the airport and basically overthrown the new jewel movement I I remember that quite vividly thinking this is strange this is interesting United States is a very large country I looked at the atlas in our school library and I found Grenada and found it's so small it could be it was barely possible to see it on the atlas you know we had a not a very good atlas but there was this large united states of america i had grown up in mortal fear of it because when i was a very little boy in 1971 um we were worried that the 7th fleet was coming up the bay of bengal and was going to bomb calcutta to prevent the indian army entering east pakistan to assist the bangladeshis 
in the creation of Bangladesh, you know, we had to put chart paper up in our windows. You know, I thought, oh my God, the Americans are going to kill us. That was the kind of history with which I looked at the news story on Grenada and I was horrified by it. Trying to find anything in our school library on it was impossible. But I did read a few newspaper articles and I learned a little bit at the time about the new, new jewel movement and Maurice Bishop. And I remember writing a longish piece again for the school newspaper on the U.S. intervention into Grenada, um, trying to attach it in my own juvenile way to other U.S. interventions of that kind, including and most spectacularly the one on which I found some material, which was the U.S. armed entry into the Dominican Republic uh, in 1965. I was somehow able to find something on that, Juan Bosch and all of that. I don't know how our school library had something on the Dominican Republic, but in this article, I compared the intervention into the Dominican Republic with Grenada, and it impacted me a lot because I felt, why do poor people have to tolerate this over and over again? Um, over the years later, you know, looking with more detail at U.S. interventions, you see the different ways in which interventions happen. But my God, it's a cliche. In many respects, it's the same old thing. Send in the Marines, overthrow the guy you don't like, disparage him call him all kinds of names and eventually put your own person in charge and don't allow the people to advance their agenda. I've been so interested um, in this way in which the U.S. government has uh, routinely gone and intervened in places and ruined the lives of people just because, you know, they're trying to improve the situation for their own public. And that's out of the question, out of the question, why? Out of the question, because if they improve their living conditions, then those big companies that make massive profits on upon them will not be able to do so any longer. And that's, you know, inexcusable. I'm a chaser of absolutely forgotten and useless stories. And I'm always chasing these stories of like weird and mysterious things that have happened in the world, because I feel like if you pull on the string of these stories, other pieces of the pie begin to show themselves. The fabric unravels a little bit. And I think that the story of Granada, 1983, that's the first string that I remember pulling and, and un beginning to understand little by little why even small countries cannot be permitted uh, to stand up straight. Next year will be the 50th anniversary of the U.S.-imposed coup on Chile. I spend most of my time now in Santiago in Chile and I'm telling you, you know, I don't even know if the Chilean people are prepared 50 years later to properly understand this coup against them. The impact of that coup has been horrendous. You write in Washington Bullets, the first draft of history, the truism goes, is the media. Like all truisms, it's only partly correct. In the case of imperialism, it's downright misleading. And then you go on to say, to read the media about Grenada after the 1979 revolution was to take stenography from the U.S. government. I mean, isn't that the case? Look, when you look at the newspaper reporting, take the New York Times, the so-called paper of record, you know, whatever that means, not much anymore, uh, perhaps never. Take the New York Times. In Washington Bullets, I write about reporters from the Washington, from the New York Times, essentially being suborned by the CIA to go and cover the events in Guatemala. You know, they're basically 
um, on secondment to the CIA to go to Guatemala and write stories about what was happening there. They, they were not even able to write things that they were seeing with their own eyes. They had to listen to what the ambassador said. They had to basically um, follow the diktat coming from, from Langley, from the CIA headquarters. In Granada, it was extraordinary because you read the New York Times and they all say things like one way, uh, one interpretation of this or the other. They all say things like, well, the Cubans had intervened um, into, uh, into Granada and to prevent a Cuban takeover of Grenada, you know, the United States had to intervene. Now, let's pause for a minute. Firstly, the new jewel movement was already as radical as the Cuban revolution. And they were, they were Grenadians. They were not Cubans. They didn't need the Cubans to teach them about revolution. They were already as radical, if not more. Secondly, the new jewel movement was already facing an internal challenge. You know, Maurice Bishop was killed in the middle of that internal challenge. Um, they were going through their own problems. But the Cubans that the U.S. press talked about were a couple of technicians, you know, sitting at the airport doing some technical, um, you know, work as Cubans often do. You know, Cubans do various forms of technical support for anybody who asks them. And the most high form of technical support the Cubans do is sending their doctors, including in the midst of the COVID pandemic, into hot wards in other countries to help save lives. The Cubans are extraordinary like that. You know, they were not their big armed force uh, to go take over Grenada that, you know, where the poor Grenadians needed to be protected from the Cubans by the United States. Nothing like that. But the New York Times routinely offered the Washington's storyline, you know, Langley's storyline that the U.S. government intervened essentially to prevent Cuba from occupying Grenada. That was a lie. It also disparages the Grenadians who are building their own revolutionary process. It, it seems as if, you know, they were basically puppets of a distant Cuban puppeteer. Entirely not correct. And not correct even in the stories because the reporters were not seeing people on the ground. And, and what's extraordinary is not long afterward. In fact, the memoir of the CIA agent who was in charge of Grenada was more accurate then the New York Times reporting, it, it turned out that he was not in station in Granada at the time. He had a stomach ailment and was off island. But when he returned and he got the story, um, he sent in his reports back to Langley the fact that there was no Cuban presence there as such, you know, some technicians and so on. So in that sense, yes, the media is grotesquely limited. Look at what the New York Times and, by the way, the Washington Post did in the lead up to that massive U.S. bombardment of Iraq, so-called shock and awe in 2003, it's one thing to just blame Judy Miller. Judy Miller is the one who wrote the stories on the weapons of mass destruction and so on. Judy Miller was the reporter. Where were the editors? I mean, I'm told it's a paper of record, which means that they must have copy editors, desk editors, a division editor, you know, the international desk editors and so on. Where were the editors when she filed a story? about how well, you know, a, a source had told her about how Saddam was doing this, that, and the other. Um, did they have a second source? Could they talk to the source? Could they verify the source? I mean, for God's sake, I work for a wire service, which seems much more rigorous, and my editor won't let me get away with, with the anonymous sourcing, much more rigorous than what the New York Times did with Judy Miller. Well, the reason they perhaps were not, and I'm speculating here, the reason they perhaps were not so rigorous with Judy Miller 
is that they had somebody putting a finger uh, on the edit page saying, let it go through. We want this to go through. I don't know. Maybe they had some friend in Washington calling them up and saying, she's writing some really important stories. Thank you for giving us space. I don't know. I don't know what exactly happened. But the fact is, they sacked Judy Miller, but the editors all remained. That means that somebody, um, you know, understood what they were up, up to. Either they it was negligence, uh, editorial negligence for which somebody should be fired, or they were perfectly happy with what they were doing. But they had to let somebody go, so they fired Judy Miller. It's not just the Iraq war. It, this continues all the way through. I'll tell you, the reporting of the U.S. press at the time of the war in Syria was extraordinarily limited. Same in Libya. I'll, I'll give you a quick example, David, about Libya. A shocking example. So I was then going back and forth covering the war in, in Libya and at the United Nations. And at the United Nations, between uh, the passing of UN Resolution 1970, which prevented arms sales to all sides, and 1973, which said that, you know, the United Nations allows member states to intervene to prevent this conflict. Between those two resolutions, um, the UN start, Secretariat started to talk about how evidence was emerging from Libya of genocidal situation in places like Ajtabia and so on, at the front lines between the Gaddafi troops and the rebellion. Um, so the UN started to say gen evidence is coming of genocidal behavior. I asked the secretariat people there, what is the evidence from? Does the UN have people on the ground? You know, how do you know about uh, the events taking place in Libya? And they said, no, no, we don't have people on the ground. And then I said, well, where are you getting this from? And they said, oh, newspaper reports. Well, didn't want to push them in public because I knew they wouldn't answer anything. Later, I talked to a friend of mine who works in the UN, at the time worked in the UN Secretariat. And I said, what press are you guys looking at? And this person said to me, well, the main press that's reporting all this is Al Arabiya. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Al Arabiya, Al Arabiya is the newspaper of the Saudi royal family. You know, it has as much credibility as ExxonMobil's newsletter. I mean, for God's sake, it's not an, it's not the press. It's a press release, you know, from the Saudi royal family. But yet that was the press that the UN used to ascertain the fact that there is genocidal conditions. And then they put forward that resolution and went and told all the other ambassadors, we have evidence of genocide. After the war in Libya, which destroyed the Libyan state, Amnesty International went back and looked at some of the allegations of genocide and wrote a report saying there was no genocidal condition in Libya. But did anybody report on the Amnesty report? Nobody. It's extraordinary. You know, it's extraordinary how the mainstream media in the particularly Western countries have been, in a sense, militarized or weaponized into war, war making. Now, I don't want to comment on their reporting on Ukraine, but I'll let your listeners basically draw their own conclusions. You were just listening to Vijay Prashad on History Lessons, part one of a special two-part program. Vijay Prashad is an internationally renowned historian and journalist. He's the author of many books, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. 
We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Arundhati Roy, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And we have a series of programs with Vijay Prashad. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Vijay Prashad on History Lessons, and for his books, Washington Bullets, The CIA Coups and Assassinations, and The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Listening to CGSW 90.9, broadcasting in Calgary on Treaty 7 land and Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3.